Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today, I have the pleasure to talk to Wendy Roth, author of Race Migrations, Latinos and the Cultural Transformation of Race. This book was published this year, 2012, from Stanford University Press. This is written by a sociologist, but I think the implications here for political scientists, for for political scientists about the study of race and the relationship of race and politics will make this an interesting read. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. I have the pleasure to have Wendy Roth on the uh, on Skype with me today. Wendy, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much. How are you? Wonderful, wonderful. Wendy's the author of Race Migrations, Latinos and the Cultural Transformation of Race. I've read the book. Uh, you wrote a really interesting book. Before we get to it, maybe you can tell the audience a little bit more about yourself, where you've been, mm-hmm. and where you are now, and how that fits into the uh, writing of this book. Sure. Um, so I uh, I am currently at the University of British Columbia, which is in Vancouver, in Canada. Um, before this, I, uh, I did my PhD in sociology and social policy at Harvard. Um, that was a, a joint program, actually, between the, the sociology department and the Kennedy School of Government. So I, I have a little bit of a, a policy focus to a lot of my interests. Um, so I, I originally grew up um, in New York City, um, you know, and I'm uh, sort of a, a firm East Coaster in terms of all my previous life experience. Um, and so I think that was really a part of what got me interested in this focus on, among Latinos, some of the Latino groups that are concentrated on the East Coast, Dominicans and Puerto Ricans. Although, as uh, you know, I can explain as we go on, um, I was really interested in those groups more for theoretical reasons. Um, and then I, uh, I ended up in Vancouver, um, and uh, it couldn't be farther away from the groups that I study, but I'm very, very happy to be here. Yeah, and, and your sort of personal connection to the city really does come out in, in this book. It, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a broad book, but it's also a very book that I think speaks to the New York experience, which, which has some unique aspects to it. Mm-hmm. So in the interest of that, um, maybe we can just talk about some of the, your approach to this and, and what you sort of did. Um, one of the things that you refer to uh, a group or people is you refer to the rainbow people mm-hmm. in quotations. So who are the rainbow people? The rainbow people is, um, is an expression that was actually coined by sociologist Clara Rodriguez to refer to Puerto Ricans. And the idea there is that Puerto Ricans, um, in terms of their physical appearance, their racialized appearance, really sort of span the rainbow, right? So you have some who look very white, very light-skinned European features. You have some who are more um, indigenous, sort of um, uh, Native American looking, sort of in that brown middle range and some who have very African features. Um, And that is really, to me, fascinating in terms of thinking about how um, Puerto Ricans and then other people from neighboring countries like the Dominican Republic who have a similar um, sort of continuum of appearances, how they integrate and fit in in the United States. 
And that's one of the things that sort of got me started in this project. Um, you know, we, we all talk about the United States as if it has this very um, sort of strict, rigid definition of races in terms of white and black, um, which certainly was historically true. Um, we talk about the one drop rule, which means that anybody who had any known African ancestry or, you know, sort of um, proverbially the one drop of black blood would have been classified as black. And so for a lot of Puerto Ricans and Dominicans, because many of them um, have mixed heritage from a, a, a historical background of a lot of um, racial mixing in the Hispanic Caribbean, when they come to the United States, um, their historical experience has been that many of them were classified as black and sort of put into that um, sort of very definite category. But in fact, if you look at the entire group, there's a huge range of appearances and phenotypes. And uh, so I was very interested in looking at what happens to the group as a whole when they migrate. Is there is there a kind of a division that happens um, based on skin tone? Um, does everybody get classified in the black category? Does everybody get classified as Latino? Those were some of the questions um, that I started out being interested in. Yeah, and the book really is this, um, at least for much of the start of it, kind of a meditation on some of the differences between race, ethnicity, and nationality. But you go, you go way beyond simply trying to define terms. What's the core argument that you're making in this book? What is, the, what is your thesis? Okay. Um, there are a couple, I would say a couple of core arguments, actually. One of the main ones that I'm making is really about the way that we think about race and how we can think about how race changes. Um, and what I'm really arguing is that we should think about race on, in terms of sort of cognitive organization, that what we do is, you know, race is not something sort of biological and given, but it's more about the way that people cognitively divide up and categorize people into groups. And so I'm trying to really orient that within cognitive science to a certain extent um, and also in approaches to culture sociology of culture. What I'm arguing... Yeah. Oh, sorry? No, no, please, go ahead. Um, what I'm arguing is that we can learn how racial categories change. Um, obviously, we know that racial categories have changed a huge amount over time, and there are a lot of processes that influence that. I'm arguing that immigration is one of them, um, and that immigration changes the way that people think about race, not just because it changes the demographics of the U.S. or any other population, but because immigrants bring with them their own concepts, their own sort of cultural constructs that are largely cognitive, um, and they influence the people around them. They can also be influenced by their host culture, so really this sort of fits within an assimilation literature, or, or rather an acculturation literature, which is more about adopting the culture of your host society. Um, but that it, it doesn't end there. Um, it also influences the sending countries that these immigrants came from. So one of the things that I do in this book is I compare Dominicans and Puerto Ricans who have migrated to New York City with people who stay behind in the sending countries. Um, so I looked at San Juan and Santo Domingo. And um, one of the things that I found is that the immigrants' experiences in the U.S. also get sent back to the home countries and shape and um, sort of help people reconceptualize race there as well so that 
people who've never migrated, never left the country, also start to adopt these new ways of thinking about race and ethnicity and identity um, that, in this case, is somewhat Americanized. Um, so I'm really sort of making a transnational argument through this comparison, but more broadly, it's an argument about you know the nature of what race is and how it changes, um, and that I'm arguing is sort of a new way to think about race um, that really hasn't um, hasn't come across in a lot of um, research before. Certainly not in sociology, which is the field that I'm in, um, and I don't believe it's it's really happened in in many other disciplines either. So let's talk a little bit about how you actually did this, your methodology, where you, uh, at least for a portion of the methodology, you used these photographs and uh, racial identification. Without the photographs, it's, it's a little hard, I imagine, to explain, but what exactly did your methodology entail? Where did you do it? How did you do it? What's the, what was the method? Okay. Um, so it's a qualitative study. It involved in-depth interviews with as I mentioned, Dominican and Puerto Rican migrants to New York City. So that's the first generation, people who were born in uh, Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic and moved to New York as adults, uh, as well as um, adults who had never left the home country. So people who lived in San Juan and Santo Domingo and had never uh, migrated or lived outside their country for six months. Um, and I combined in-depth interviews with participant observation. So a lot of observations, a lot of field notes on what I was seeing as I was living in these countries, interacting with these groups in New York City and so on. And the interview um, really contained a number of parts. So um, I had a, you know, a large um, number of questions and issues I wanted to explore that ranged from things like their integration experiences, their social networks, um, to their experiences with discrimination. But one of the core parts of my methodology, as you mentioned, is this use of photographs. And what I did is I put together a set of photos of people who sort of represent the range of typical racial appearances that you would find in these countries. Um, so you've got some people who look very European, you've got some people who look very African, and then in the photos as well, there are a lot of mixes. So there's some people with very light skin tone, but African features, some people with darker skin tone and European features and so on. So it's, it's a real range. And there are 20 photographs all together. Um, I, I had some consultants uh, who were um, actually themselves first-generation migrants from um, Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic who, who met with me and gave me advice over which photographs to use to best represent this, this range. And then during the interviews, I showed these photos to my respondents and I asked them to classify the race of the people in the photographs in whatever terms they would normally use. So I gave them no guidance in terms of what racial categories I was looking for. And people would go through the photos. And what I really expected was that people in the Hispanic Caribbean would use this kind of continuum schema where they would use a number of folk terms like um, trigueño, indio, mulato, habao. These are sort of folk terms that represent the range of all those specific types and have um, really sort of um, dominated the literature on how race is conceptualized in the Hispanic Caribbean. And then as I moved to the migrants, that they would start to adopt more Americanized uh, views. So they might use just white and black or maybe a few other categories. 
so that's really how the photographs came in. Um, and then in terms of methodology, I would use their classifications to explore really sort of how they came to these decisions. How did they decide to classify this photograph in this way and that one in a different way? What were they focusing on? Which characteristics, which aspects of the photos? I also um, gathered a social network from respondents, so um, a, a list of people that they were friends with, that they had um, gotten to know from work, from school, from a number of different places. And I also asked them to classify those people in whatever terms they normally would to classify their race, um, to get more of a sense of how they normally classify people they actually know. And I also asked them to identify the skin color of both the photographs and the people in their social network and themselves. And I can talk a little bit more about that and what I was interested in. Um, then another thing I did is in order to sort of really explore different ways of thinking about race, Later on in the interview, I showed them a list of these types of folk terms that are normally found in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. And I, these are terms that I got from the literature um, and from, you know, consulting with people about the range of terms. I think I had, you know, maybe 20 terms, sort of folk terms that um, are used to describe different characteristics and different types. And so I talked with people about, okay, so what do these terms mean? How were they used? And then I had them go through the photographs again and use these types of terms, mulatto, moreno, um, blanca, blanca con raza, and so on, to um, identify the people in the photographs with sort of this, um, you know, more uh, Latin American construct of race. And what this really helped me do was to get a sense of both the, the ways they would normally classify the photos completely on their own in terms of how they think about race, you know, when there's no context at all for, you know, how to think about people. And then also, can they, um, do they also go back and forth to use these more Latin Americanized constructs of race and do they know what that means? So I'm sort of exploring both the range of um, concepts of race that they tend to use, and also some of the ones that they know about but may not always use. The, I thought the methodology was really interesting, and some of the, what kind of come out is some of the anecdotes about, there was one with one of your respondents who, who used a, almost a purely nationality-based system <laughs> that, that seemed almost unique to, to I, I think it was a male, um, that connected up the, the racial descriptions to uh, nations. And, and it's just, it's a very interesting part of the book. The findings are also very interesting. I found in particularly the, fi the findings on U.S. migrants with higher education to be some of the more interesting uh, findings that you came up with. How are the views of, of that cohort uh, different than the other cohorts, the uh, other groups of uh, migrants and, and those with lower levels of education? Well, what I found was a big difference in terms of education level, in terms of the migrants and, and the types of racial categories they use, the types of concepts of race that they used. And I really found that it was the migrants with higher education who were starting to adopt Americanized concepts of race. Um, so I, I identify what I call racial schemas. And th this is basically a cognitive um, mapping, um, if you will, of 
categories and how they relate to one another and how they're structured and how they're ordered. And so, you know, we can think of a U.S concept of race as being a particular kind of schema. The traditional one-drop rule schema would be just black and white. Um, you might also think of there being a U.S. schema that includes Latino as a racial category, so it might be white, Latino, black. And I found that it was the U.S. migrants with higher education who were really learning those Americanized schemas um, from their interactions with non-Latino Americans. So it was something that... Um, happened a lot in their experiences in higher education. When they went to college, um, they would often, you know, sort of have long conversations with people about race and identity and, and what was race and what was ethnicity. So a lot of people said that, you know, I always thought of myself of my race in one way. And then I got to college and everybody sort of said, no, 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 that's not your race. That, you know, that's not a race. Your race is either white or black. Which one is it? Um, and so people were really learning these American, Americanized ways of thinking about race through their experiences interacting with non-Latino Americans um, in college, also in the workplace. Um, and this is in comparison with the migrants that have lower levels of education, so who've never gone to college. What they tended to do is to use this um, sort of association of race and nationality. And, you know, probably a lot of people have uh, read or interacted with Latinos who will say, my race is Puerto Rican, my race is Mexican, my race is Latino. Um, now, as scholars, we tend to think of those as ethnicities or perhaps nationalities. We don't tend to think of them as races. But in these sending countries, in the Hispanic Caribbean, there's a long history of associating Na nations or sort of a, a cultural people with a race. Sometimes you'll hear people say la raza to mean um, who we are as a people. So it's very common to hear la raza dominicana means the Dominican people. And that's a kind of a racialized term. So it's really common for migrants who come here, the ones who've never gone to college, who are mostly interacting with other Latinos, to identify everybody in terms of nationality. And I found this with the photographs, that when they were going through the photographs, they would say things like, this person's race is Dominican, this person's race is American, this person's race is Honduran, this person is Ecuadorian, um, and so on. And they were using all nationality terms. It was the migrants with higher education who really were starting to come to understand these um, Americanized ways of viewing race. And it wasn't just something that happened over time from being here. It was only something that really happened as they were getting into discussions with native-born Americans about race and what it is. And you distinguish between, and this is, was sort of a, a piece that I, I didn't really know very much about, was distinguishing between what you describe as cultural assimilation and structural assimilation. Um, Maybe you could just briefly talk about the the difference and how it plays a part in this um, these these changing views and, and conceptions of race. Absolutely. Um, so this goes back to the work of a sociologist by the name of Milton Gordon, who is sort of one of the the, the foundational scholars in studies of immigrant assimilation, and he was the first person to really distinguish between cultural assimilation, what's sometimes known as acculturation. And that's the idea that immigrants pick up the culture of their new society. So they pick up the um, 
the mannerisms, the customs, the dress, the language, um, the values, um, you know, something like the fact that we, we tend to say that, you know, Americans are more individualistic. So it might be picking up a value system like that as a result of being here. And what he says is that, you know, that's almost like a, something that there is public access to. Anyone can come here and can learn American values, American customs. Um, it's, it's sort of like a public good. Well, not good, but it's, it's, a, it's a public, uh, publicly available um, uh, system. And he distinguishes that from structural assimilation. And what that really means is sort of entering into primary relationships, um, it, you know, in-depth relationships with members of the dominant group in a society. Um, so that might be in terms of um, joining some of the institutions, uh, going to higher education, for example, but also um, sort of entering into some of the, the clubs um, or the cliques, you know, sort of the social networks um, of the dominant group. And that's something that not everybody has access to, right? Because in a sense, it has to be a, a little bit of a two-way street. The dominant group has to let you into their networks and their clubs and institutions. So not everybody can do that. And what he really says is that it's only with that kind of structural assimilation that um, people start to um, uh, people start to really learn more about um, the dominant society and sort of be accepted and move up and move into it. And, and that's really the kind of integration that m most people think of when they think of assimilation. Um, but what he says is that that's totally different from cultural assimilation. So immigrants can come and adopt the culture without necessarily integrating into these sort of um, primary networks. Let's let's also take this and link it up with the the political science literature, which you you make some reference to in the book. And I was thinking specifically of your reference to Samuel Huntington's 2004 book. Um, uh, the name escapes me right now. Who we but are. Wonder, who we are. Yeah. Right. Um, I wonder how does Huntington relate to what you're working on? And it seems to me that it it, it takes your study and and really does. Um, elevate its importance and, and the significance to the, the contemporary debate in an important way. Mm -hmm. So Huntington is um, sort of talking about uh, largely Latino immigration, and you know he's probably primarily influenced by Mexican immigration, which is the, the largest national group um, that's part of that Latino immigration. And um, it, some of the arguments that he's making there is that Latin Americans don't really, basically they can't be assimilated into American society. They don't share the same sort of core cultural background and values. Um, and they don't share the history of sort of, you know, who Americans are as an Anglo-Saxon people. Um, and, you know, there have been a number of reactions to his work and, uh, you know, a lot of debate around it. Um, what what I'm uh, in part saying is that it's not true <laughs> that um, Latinos, particularly the groups that I look at, are not assimilable. They very much are assimilable. And in fact, what he really focuses on is, is cultural assimilation, right? So are they picking up the culture? Are they um, coming to uh, adopt English? Are they coming to adopt um, American ways? Um, and, and I found you know, this is something that is absolutely possible for immigrants. Um, a lot of the immigrants that I spoke with have very much 
become culturally American. Many of them, um, you know, speak English, feel more American than they do um, Puerto Rican or Dominican, or rather in terms of, you know, their culture, who they are, where they've lived, and so on. Um, but what I'm saying is that the structural assimilation um, isn't going to happen for everyone. And, um, and, you know, that has a lot to do with the, the different sort of, um, the different ways of thinking about where Latinos are going to end up in terms of a racial hierarchy in the U.S. So there's this sense that a lot of uh, Latin Americans who immigrate are going to be in this sort of permanent underclass, um, that they're not going to integrate, they're not going to learn English, they're not going to become part of um, mainstream dominant American society. Um, and what I'm finding is that there are a lot of immigrants who... Um, can very certainly can integrate. They've learned English. Um, they could identify as American if they wanted to. They could lose their uh, Latino um, identity. First of all, they don't necessarily see that as in their interest. You know, I think that a lot of the arguments um, that Huntington has and, and a lot of other scholars have sort of assume that it's in your interest to become American, to lose your ethnic identity. And for Latinos, that's not necessarily the case, especially for many of those who sort of realize, um, you know, Latinos are a growing population group. Um, they're a, a growing consumer group. They're um, having increased influence in politics. Um, and so there's a real advantage to not just being able to speak Spanish and being bilingual, but also being able to sort of um, culturally um, go back and forth between uh, sort of American dominant society and Latino culture. And, um, you know, somebody who, say, works in a service industry, if they are sort of culturally bilingual, right, you know, they can interact and talk with um, a Latin American immigrant um, just as easily as they can talk with and interact with, um, you know, a white native-born person you know, that they have a real advantage in their job. So many people um, are adopting aspects of American culture, but they don't necessarily want to lose the culture that they already have. They see it as more, more um, uh, to their advantage uh, to maintain and be able to move back and forth between different um, cultural groups, linguistic groups, and so on. Then, oh, sorry, the other way that I think that... Um, this uh, work relates to the work of Huntington and others. It's sort of this question of, well, okay, so what, you know, where are Latinos going to end up in a racial hierarchy in the U.S.? And there's been a lot of debate about that. You know, are those who are light-skinned just going to join white Americans? Are those who are dark-skinned going to become sort of seen as black? Are they going to be sort of grouped in with um, uh, African Americans? Um, and what I'm arguing is that Latino has really come to be seen as a race in U.S. society. The U.S. Census doesn't want to define it that way. They keep saying, no, Latino is an aspect of your ethnicity, but your race should be white, black, or you know, American Indian. Although just recently they've announced that they are starting to revise that um, opinion. Um, and you know, this is just something that doesn't square with migrants' experiences. They see themselves being treated as a Latino race and um, you know, and that is something that's actually kind of consistent with their views that they bring with them from home. So I see 
you know, more of a, a Latino racial category emerging. That's not to say that skin color doesn't matter. I think it absolutely does. And those with lighter skin have a lot more advantages than those with darker skin. But in terms of um, how Latinos are seen as a group in American society and in a racial hierarchy, I really see them as sort of falling in the middle in this, um, in this sort of middle space between black and whites. How does this relate to some of the other racial ethnic groups in, in U.S. society? Have you studied at all uh, Asian uh, American groups, uh, Asian American migrants to the U.S., and whether these patterns that you observe about the uh, uh, structural and cultural assimilation does this work the same way in, in the Asian American community? I haven't uh, personally done primary research with those groups. I've read a lot about them and their experiences, and um, I think that there are a lot of similarities. I think that um, particularly for Asian Americans, like Latino Americans, one of the biggest challenges is um, the fact that they're always seen as foreign. Um, they're never seen as sort of fully American, even if they've been in the country for generations. And that's something that Latin Americans um, and native-born Latinos face as well. So I think that's very similar. Um, I would say that one interesting difference between the two groups is that the, the range of phenotypical variants among Latin Americans um, more neatly fits into the sort of the black-white um, spectrum. So there is obviously also a lot of, um, excuse me, there's also a lot of um, variation in the appearance of Latinos. I'm trying to hang up this call. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, but um, for, for Asian Americans, although there's certainly a lot of variation in terms of who is seen as lighter and who is seen as darker, it doesn't really map on to um, U.S. black-white categories as well. So there's a tendency there for people to all get lumped together. And um, I, I think that that's not as much. So with Latinos, there, there's this question about whether they're, excuse me, I should, uh, mm -hmm. this will be edited out, right? Uh, we can try. Okay. Where was I? So with Latin America, uh, with Latin Americans, there's this question of whether skin tone will sort of lead some people to be um, integrated into white versus black, and and that's not as much of a possibility with Asians, I believe. Mm -hmm. There is a sense that Asians are becoming uh, seen as white in the U.S. racial structure because they're intermarrying at such high rates, they are um, achieving the same kind of socioeconomic gains um, as, as, white, as white Americans. And, um, and so as a result of that, there's kind of this sense that eventually Asians are kind of going to be assimilated into the white category in the same way that the Irish or Italians have been in the past. Um, I honestly believe that both Asians and Latinos um, are probably going to be seen as distinctive groups, uh, even though there's uh, a lot of gains that have been made, uh, especially among Asians, in terms of their socioeconomic uh, um, status and intermarriage and interactions. Um, I think that the primary way that they're going to um, sort of 
blend in or sort of join a white group is going to be through the children of intermarriages, not so much Asians um, themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's really, and, and this is beyond the scope of your book, and so these are all sort of speculations. And speaking of that, this book just came out fairly recently. Can we get a preview of what you're working on now or what the what the next book is going to be all about? Sure. Um, so my next book actually takes a slightly different tack. Um, one of the interests that I think runs through all of my work is this question of how do racial categories and classifications change? And so what I'm working on next is sort of looking at a different way that categories and and racial identities can change, and that is genetic ancestry testing. So um, I don't know if all of your listeners are familiar with this, but there are now a number of companies that will sell these tests directly to um, the public over the Internet where you can um, purchase a kit do a cheek swab or spit into a cup, send it away, and you get an analysis of your ancestry. Um, so somebody might get a chart which says that they are, you know, only they're 70% European and uh, 20% African and 10% Native American. And so I'm interviewing people who take these tests to try to understand, well, first of all, does this affect their, their own identity? If, if you're somebody who has always thought of yourself as white and then you find out that you have a significant um, portion of African ancestry through these tests, does that change how you think about yourself? But then also, does it change how they think about what race is, the nature of race? Do they think about race as being something more biological um, because this genetic test tells them this information as opposed to thinking of it as more of a social construct? And then I'm also interested in the influence that this has on their interactions across racial lines and also their racial attitudes. So if somebody finds out that they have this new ancestry that they didn't know about before, do they reach out to those communities? Do they start to get involved? Do they start to make new friendships across those racial lines? Sounds like a very interesting addition to this book that you just just wrote in Stanford University Press, just published. Wendy Roth's book, Race, Migrations, Latinos, and the Cultural Transformation of Race, is now available. Wendy, thank you very much for your time today. You're very welcome.